Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Whether fighting for your values or fighting for justice, Matthew's gospel begs the question, who are you fighting? In human narratives, egotistical by nature, you are the good guy fighting your enemy. This compelling personal narrative born of ego and shaped by your experience is a rejection of God. In scripture, you yourself are the Lord's enemy. Instead of trying to bring the Bible to your life, to make it relevant for today so that you can judge your neighbor, you must transport yourself into the Bible's world where you are judged, where you are the hypocrite of Matthew chapter 23. To borrow a line from Brian Morton, we'd all be better readers if we realized that it isn't the writer who's the time traveler. It's the reader. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 33 to 36. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 368 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the great mistakes of teachers, pastors, civil servants, idealists who think that they can save the world, which is simply a way of making the world in your image, which is another kind of tyranny. But one of the great failings or mistakes of people in those situations and those roles is that they despair when they see how bad things are. And one of the great things about the biblical tradition is that it not only accepts the way things are, but uses those things to its advantage for its purpose. And of course, we've been explaining as we've worked through Matthew 23, the way in which the sin of the Pharisee is used as a tool or a mechanism of hope for the Gentiles. That's the story of Paul's letter to the Romans. But there's another very difficult function in the biblical genre that is used in a way that goes against our understanding of how things work, and that is destruction. Judgment and destruction. The funny thing about people who are trying to save the world is that they're working against the biblical God who teaches us that the natural outcome of human folly is destruction, but that destruction is hope. We always see ourselves as outside of the biblical story. I see everything that's going on, and I despair because look at all those things that are going on. And I forget that I'm one of those things. And I'm going on too. 
when there is a conversation on social media and I make my contribution because I want the conversation to go a certain way or I want the conversation to take a certain turn or whatever. For Facebook, I'm profile user 01357 I'm not Dr. Richard Benton with my knowledge and no, 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 who stands outside of the conversation and I have a unique point of view on what's going on. I don't have a unique point of view. My point of view is formed by the people I'm around. My point of view is formed by what I read. My point of view is formed by what I listen to. The problem arises actually when I think I'm above all those things. It's just like the people who say that, you know, commercials don't work on me. Of course they work on you. Just like they work on everybody else. What makes you different than everyone else that the marketers are looking at? Commercials work on me. I tell my kids, the only way to win is not to play. Social media is going to get you every time. Social media is going to make you do what they want you to do. When we talk about this cycle of destruction, we always want to stand outside it. We always want to watch the cycle of destruction happen, like Jonah sitting on a hill, watching Nineveh get destroyed. And that's why the Lord had to create the tree and then kill the tree, so that Jonah would realize, you're part of this cycle just like everybody else. I'm a part of this cycle just like everyone else. And when I read about the Pharisees and the woes of the Pharisees, one reaction could be, boy, I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee, or, whoa, I hope I'm not a Pharisee. But what makes me think I'm not a Pharisee? Why would I think that I'm better than the Pharisees? What makes me think that I'm outside of this? I mean, Jesus is saying this to his disciples, woe to the Pharisees. This isn't a teaching for the Pharisees. It's against the Pharisees, but it's not for the Pharisees. It's for his disciples. It's for his students. It's for the crowds. And why would I exempt myself from that? When Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being the children of those who put the prophets to death, he's accusing me, the reader, me, Dr. Richard Benton, as someone who put the prophets to death, who is in the same cycle as everybody else. We do not preach to stave off judgment and destruction or to usher it in. We preach as instructed so that when judgment and destruction and suffering eventually come, which is an inevitability because that is how the human system works, that's how biological systems on the earth work. Our politics are an expression of biology. One of the great mistakes of the human race is the delusion, the self-delusion, that we are something other than the rest of creation. But we are commanded to preach so that when that cycle comes, there is hope because wisdom is still available. We have to preach. We have to teach. We have to give instruction not to change the world, but to make sure that we were not obstructing the work of the tiny mustard seed. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Of course, the word that is translated as hell 
Ge'ena is the place where you would take the trash out and burn it. So what we're talking about here is ruin, destruction, suffering, punishment as a consequence for disobedience. Now in the story of scripture, God is the one who inflicts that suffering and that judgment. But you don't need a degree in psychology and sociology and history to know that if you slap someone on the face, they will likely slap you back. You don't need to be a graduate of Harvard University to recognize that self-involvement and selfishness leads to destruction. It's not rocket science. <laughs> As the people of St. Elizabeth will remind me, that's my favorite quote. It's not rocket science. It's obvious that certain behaviors lead to suffering. So when someone who's an idealist looks around and sees those behaviors accelerating and amplifying themselves, it's easy to think, oh, what are you going to do? And then scripture comes in and says, guess what? I have good news. This amplification of destruction is the work of God. So just keep teaching and don't get in his way, <laughs> you brood of vipers. This teaching of this cycle that keeps going on, I remember one time I was taught that, you know, the difference between ancient thinking and modern thinking is that modern thinking, we understand that we're on a line. History is a line, a timeline, and it's a trajectory, you know, and when you're in school, you draw a timeline. It's a line with arrows on the end. And they would say ancient people used to think that history didn't move forward, but that it was a circle. Well, I don't know about modern thinking. I think we do think that way, actually, but I think it's because they taught it to us in school, not because that's necessarily how things actually work. We just have events. Father Paul would say it's because of the influence of Hegel, Richard, as you know. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think Hegel was a product of his time where he thought, oh, things are moving forward. We have those who are farther ahead in history and those who are behind in history, and we have advanced people and primitive people, like this whole way of thinking. But Jesus when he speaks against the Pharisees, brings it back to the very first point. Office. Serpents. When's the first time we hear about the office in the Bible? It's in Genesis 3. It's the one who tempted Adam and Eve. He doesn't say <laughs> that they're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. No. He says they're serpents, generations Yenimata, generations of snakes. You are an entire generation of serpents, just like the one that tempted Eve in the garden. This is what you are. When you make yourself the reference point, when you are interested in listening to, let alone obeying, the law that the Lord set out about what to eat and what not to eat in the garden, you are now setting yourself outside of that teaching, and you are now functionally the serpent. It's history happening all over again. So if I, Dr. Richard Benton, make myself and my discovery and my knowledge the reference point, then I'm functioning as the serpent. But when I preach the law, the Torah, the teaching of God that says that there's only one reference point, and that's this word, 
then I'm actually teaching as I'm supposed to teach. But when I am functionally the serpent, I am a murderer of the prophets. And, you know, I'm, I'm a human being. Of course, when I speak off the cuff, I'm making myself the reference point. I cannot divorce myself from this story. I can't say, oh, thank you, God, for not making me a Pharisee. I am the Pharisee. I'm exactly the Pharisee that the Lord is speaking against. The only time that what I'm speaking is valid is when it's reflecting this teaching. Like, this has to be a red line. When I'm in groups of Christians who say, well, I think this and I think that, and I'm like, hold on, hold on, what text are we talking about here? And they don't know, then I'm just frustrated. Because now we are the generation of vipers. We're all the serpent. Look, Michael Barbaro said it this week without even realizing it when they did the expose on this charity worker in New York City who came from a very humble beginning in the Bronx and had a compelling story that would bring tears to people's eyes and who was saved from poverty and drug addiction by Jesus Christ and, 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 and. And we talk about his single mom in a poor neighborhood and all of this led to this work that he was doing around the New York area, building homeless shelters and taking care of people and helping them get on their feet. And this is exactly what American marketing culture is. Give us your personal story so that we can be engaged and connect with you and feel something. Well, when you're telling your personal story, you're writing your own scripture. And what I love about the example from the New York Times is this guy who brought in all this investment by sharing his personal story used that same story to prey on vulnerable, single, homeless women who came to him for help. This is the inevitable outcome of preaching yourself. It's very boring to study Hebrew. It's very difficult to study Greek in the context of Hebrew. It's tiring and difficult to go line by line through a text. I mean, we try to make it interesting for our listeners, but it's a lot of work. But at least if you trust God, you know that he's not selling you a gallon of snake oil. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And I hasten to add, always, Richard, that while the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, a Pharisee, is criticizing the synagogue, which is the place that he worships, he is writing to the early church, so we have to, when we hear the word synagogue, replace it with the word church, because we are being judged by the writer's self-critique. I mean, first of all, Father, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm ready to quit my job and just go line by line through Hebrew for the rest of my career, but you know. Don't tell everybody that we love this stuff. That ruins the effect. <laughs> that might be a way that I actually do stand outside the rest of the crowd. I'm not sure, <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> I don't... I, we're Bible nerds, and uh, we wish uh, it on yeah. all of you, honestly. <laughs> I, You know, in this verse, you know, when you talk about making yourself the reference point... I find these verses so poignant because it's not, don't be a serpent, don't be of the generation of vipers, 
don't kill prophets, don't kill wise men. He's not saying that. He's saying you're going to do this. It's going to happen. I keep going back to Deuteronomy 31. It blew my mind because he's like, here's the song that you sing so that you have a witness against you. The reason why this is here is not because Jesus is saying, don't do it. He's saying, when you do do it, and it's judgment time, we're going to call this back up to show that there was a warning, that there was a testimony, and that you knew that this was going to happen. The danger isn't that I'm going to kill and crucify the prophets, wise men, and scribes. The danger is that this is a testimony against me, and so when that does happen, God's got everything against me for the judgment. That's the danger. If I'm going to play this ahead, it's not play this ahead, okay, how do I avoid killing wise men and prophets? No. It's playing this ahead, okay, what do I say then on judgment day? Because I know that I'm a child of these vipers. And when I say I, I'm not even talking abstractly. I'm saying Richard Benton is a serpent, child of vipers, killing prophets, wise men, and scribes, killing, crucifying, scourging them, persecuting them from city to city, Richard Benton. And I'm like, come on, I'm not good. Now I have to go buy a cat of nine tails or something like that for scourging? Like, how does this make any sense? That's up to me to figure out how this makes sense. When the senior vice president at the company says, here's the goals for the division for the next quarter, he's not going to say, okay, Richard Benton, here's what you need to do. No, no, no. It's up to me to realize what I need to do to move that vision ahead. It's up to me to figure out what's going on here. So I have to realize not only is there going to be a judgment, there's going to be a crime, and there's going to be plenty of evidence against me. This is where I start once I get here to the end of Matthew 23. And there's a lot of New Testament to come after this, so it's not good, which means it's not good for me. It means I'm not in a good position. It means I'm in a tough spot. So do I despair? I can, but better to say, look, I'm part of this system. I'm part of this. And the best thing I can do is to be prepared to throw myself at the feet of God and ask for his mercy. And the better I get at that, then the better I'll be on that day. That's the one thing I can start to do now is realize that he is the judge. Take this very seriously and understand how serious this evidence is against me and how guilty I am of this because I am part of this system. In verse 34, Jesus is calling the president and making sure that there is a transcript. And he's not even asking the president to incriminate himself. He's simply saying, you are going to do all these things and it's on the record now so that when there's a trial, there's a transcript convicting you. So that, in verse 35, upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And I didn't choose the example of the president by chance because this text is addressing those who hold power. The Pharisee is criticizing himself so that those who hold other types of authority will submit to the criticism. 
Jesus is emasculated in the New Testament in order to emasculate Caesar. Because the only hope in the midst of destruction is that we understand whom the destruction is against and why God is bringing it. That's the genius of literature. Jesus doesn't need to see the future. He understands human behavior in the story. And there will be suffering because of egomaniacs like Caesar. Whether they be religious or political, Caesar happened to be both because he wanted to be worshipped like a god. And frankly, it's the same way today. They just use different terminology, but it's the same function. Now, if you know that Jesus is already declaring the president guilty before he's born, then there's hope that not everybody will follow a president. Every single ruler falls in line with this story. Every single would-be believer falls in the line of this story. That's what's really difficult when we do claim any kind of power, any kind of knowledge. We're here in the story. Someone might be challenged by this because it's really anti-historical. How am I, Richard Benton, guilty of the blood from Abel to Zechariah? I wasn't around during the time of Zechariah, let alone Abel. There's only one guy who's guilty of Abel's death. It's Cain. It's really clear. There's no individual named in Zechariah's death, but whatever. So why would Richard Benton receive the guilt of the righteous blood of Abel or Zechariah? Like, how does that make sense? I'm not crucifying anybody to say that I stand outside of this cycle of destruction that you're describing, Father. It's so easy for me to just say I'm outside of it, which means my work has to be to see where I fit in this story. So if I'm going to fit myself in this story, I have to say, look, when I understand that if I make myself the reference point, which I do every day, 23 hours and 59 minutes a day, I make myself the reference point. And there's one way that the serpent misled Eve. There's one way that Cain killed Abel. There's one way that the courtesans killed Zechariah. It's because they took a break from God's law, from God's teaching. They put it to the side, followed their heart, did what seemed right to them, and then cascaded these events of guilt. And so being guilty of Abel's blood, being guilty of Zechariah's blood, being guilty of the blood of the people on death row, being guilty of the people dying of disease on the Mexican border, it's all the same thing. You're guilty of the righteous blood. And I could say, well, I'm not killing anybody on the border. I'm not pulling the switch for the people on death row. As soon as you say that, you're out of the story. And once you set yourself outside of the story, then you become the serpent again, because now you're making yourself the reference point because you believe that you're outside. And as soon as I start to believe my own teaching that I'm outside of this story, there's no hope left for me. One of the great sins that people make when, quote, seeking justice is to fall into the trap of trying to avenge those who are forgotten 
when we know from Scripture that vengeance belongs only to the Lord. By mentioning Abel, which, of course, Abel in Hebrew means vanishing breath, Matthew is reminding you of what his teacher Paul said, that God is not mocked. It's a sweeping and comprehensive anomnesis of all of the people who were like vanishing breath, who we stomped on throughout the ages, those people whom we forgot with our kingly histories that tried to erase them. God will not forget them, and he is not mocked. That is why in the Eastern tradition we proclaim memory eternal, because God does not forget. Abel may have vanished in human eyes, but he has not vanished in God's eyes, and his death will be avenged. And it's surely not a coincidence that the name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. Took the words right out of my mouth. And who came after Zechariah? Our beloved John the Baptist. Which character in the story is interchangeable with our beloved John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark? The Apostle Paul. So the literature we're dealing with here is much more beautiful than people give it credit for. This is when Scripture really unlocks its true majesty because it takes something ugly like human sin or violence. These are ugly things to be loathed. And it shows how wisdom can make out of that garbage dump in Geena something life-giving. And here, those of you who happen to be Orthodox listening to the podcast should get excited. Because the bridegroom steps out from a tomb, a place of dead bones, the bridegroom still proceeds forth, as the hymnography says, as though from a bridal chamber, a place where life is conceived and where there's rejoicing. This is where our hope comes from, not in some fairy tale version of the New Testament where everybody's okay in the end. That's not what the prophet Havakuk bears witness to. It's not. It's not what he, quote, saw, as the hymn says. It's the hope and the promise that God is not mocked and Abel is not forgotten. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And if you're someone steeped in biblical literature, these verses are encouraging. And they're the very verses that everybody shies away from because they're so dark and negative or whatever, but they're not because you can never find your way to submitting to the hope of the biblical proposition if you don't submit to the proclamation of your own destruction in the text. You'll just spend the rest of your life trying to hide from destruction and you'll become the cause of a greater destruction through your delusion. All the things we do aren't going to work. The only thing that works is what is actually correct and actually factually true 
about life. That's the currency of the Bible. The factuality about life doesn't change, and that's essential for this, because I can see here the trap of history and how it undermines what Scripture is trying to do. That's why, you know, calling this the Bible is Literature podcast is really important to me. I didn't actually scourge anybody. I didn't actually kill Abel. So what does this have to do with me? I'm not a Pharisee. I don't even like Pharisees. How does this apply to me? If we make this historical, it's nonsense. This verse can really throw you off. All these things shall come upon this generation. Really, which generation is he talking about? He's talking to a bunch of people in the first century. Clearly, I'm not alive in the first century, and I'm clearly not that generation, so it doesn't fall upon me. Well, significantly, in verse 33, you serpents, you generations of vipers. Every generation is a generation of vipers. All these things are going to come upon this generation, and this generation, and this generation, and this generation. You know, you and I, Father, we're Generation X. In our modern society, we have demographic names for each generation. So then the only question is not whether Generation X is a generation of vipers, whether all these things are going to come upon Generation X. The fact is, Verily, Jesus says to us, these things shall come upon Generation X. Generation X is guilty of these things. Now, are the boomers guilty? Are millennials guilty? Are Gen Z guilty? Who cares? Yes. (laughs) Everybody's unrighteous. Just relax. Everybody is. Yes. Relax. Relax. We are guilty of this, that this is going to happen. We can't get out of this. I mean, it has to be metaphorical in some way, because unless I am with a hammer and nails, I'm not crucifying somebody, okay? But how does this judgment apply to me? How does it apply to say all these things shall come upon this generation? Is Jesus just speaking to a particular generation? Is he just speaking nonsense? Is he speaking just so abstractly I have to put these things together? This is what it means for me to wrestle through this text. What does it mean? I wasn't there when they kicked the Indians out of the land. I don't live in Israel and Palestine. That thing in Yemen is so far away. Who are the Aromo anyways? I mean, come on, it's endless the way people distance themselves from sin. It's just the human story, Richard. I never owned any slaves either, by the way. So, Oh, uh, that's good to know. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Which, you know, which means it doesn't apply. Like, this is the thing that I find really shallow, is that people don't look to see how deep the tendrils of their sin goes and of their rebellion against what God has commanded us. You know, I love the brothers Karamazov, the moment when Alyosha is able to understand God's will for him to love and to teach love among the children in his village is when he realizes that the guilt of evil in the world falls on him. That's the moment when he's able to actually reach out and really understand what mercy is. I mean, this is the Brothers Karamazov, this book where everyone's struggling with mercy and what is mercy. But I'm telling you, if you think that you're exempt from this judgment then mercy is just too abstract of a concept for you. Ironically, Jesus is teaching mercy in this passage because he's really trying to get you to think hard. How deep does our sin go? How bad is it really that we're doing all these things? I mean, I've talked to people, you know, former addicts, and they're like, it took me years to realize how much I was hurting other people. I thought they were all just crazy. 
when you make yourself the reference point, that's what this whole thing has been, railing against the Pharisees and the scribes and the woes have been about making yourself the reference point, making your experience, your heart, your feeling the reference point, rather than this passage, these words, this teaching of God. It's interesting that you mentioned Dostoevsky, which my wife tells me just isn't the same thing in English, which I accept wholeheartedly. But I remember thinking while I was reading it, my God, this man knew the Bolshevik revolution was an inevitability. And in a way, some of the critiques he has of his own community and his own time apply to the mood in our country right now the way that he makes fun of someone who cares about humanity but doesn't visit their next-door neighbor. But that's the point. It's not that he was predicting the future. It's that what he was saying about sin was universal and therefore applied when the Bolshevik Revolution happened. What we are saying about individualism and selfishness is universal and will apply when eventually individualism in the West eats itself once and for all. And in that moment, whenever it happens, and we don't want it to happen, and we're not trying to predict it, we're explaining to you that everything in life runs its course. And Scripture is trying to take advantage of that moment when something has run its course to do a course correction for the sake of whatever comes next, for the sake of the people living. You and I were talking about how everyone always tries to come up with a justification for why we should care about the poor, why we shouldn't ignore minority groups, because maybe they're great poets and great scientists. Sure, maybe there are, but that's not why we're commanded to love everybody. A person who is vanishing breath still has value, whether you can measure it in human terms or not. And so therefore, you must, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, do and say everything and your power so that that invisible person can rejoice in this life, just like those of us who happen to come from privilege. It doesn't matter if you get anything out of it. It does not matter. The real mission is to make sure that the seed of the gospel is propagated for the sake of those whom God remembers and we shun and forget through our hubris. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.